Do you ever find yourself walking into another room, you know, maybe at home, and when you get there, you kind of wonder why you went there? You forgot why you went to that room. Now, apparently that's been happening a lot. So much so that psychologists have gotten involved in it now to figure out what's going on. Now, I always just contributed it to sometimes disease. You know, we all get a little forgetful. Or, or maybe uh, you could call it CWP, canine walking pattern. You ever see, you know, like dogs, what they do? And they, they just walk around the house, they go in a room, they don't know, they just turn around and go to another room, and then, you know. But apparently neither of those descriptions is good enough, so psychologists now call it boundary event. That is, you have left one boundary or area and gone to another one, and your brain needs some time to reshuffle its thoughts so that you know why you're in that room. Boundary event. Now you're probably wondering, where is he going with this? Why is he talking about that with church? Well, it's not that I think you don't know why you've come into church. You know, you already know that when you get up and get in the car and come here. You know you're coming to church to worship, to hear God's word, to pray, and to be around fellow believers. But we might have boundary event when we leave. That is, maybe we forget about worshiping God outside of this building or listening to his word. Or maybe when we leave, we don't think about our fellow believers anymore. Well, this month, we have focused our messages on the theme, praying for others. We talked about praying for our government leaders, our church leaders, for people who are in need. Well, today, we want to focus on our fellow believers. And, and to help you with that encouragement, of course, we've we put another prayer folder into your uh, bulletin, as we have the past few weeks, and encourage you to use these prayers throughout the week, this time focused on your fellow believers. Now, why should we have that kind of focus? Well, if I told you that was something that the Apostle Paul did all the time, wouldn't you think that's a good example to follow? Sure. In fact, in all of his letters except for two, he starts out with prayers for his fellow believers. So let's take a look at just one of his prayers today and learn some lessons about praying for others. From Philippians. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. From the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, this past week, as I was thinking about the theme and praying for fellow believers, I, I simply had to ask the question, well, how do you pray for fellow believers? 
And it came to me when I was shopping in the grocery store and I came across this pile of melons. I thought of the people from Apostles. <laughs> now, before you call for an emergency voter meeting to fire me, let me explain. I'm not calling you a bunch of melons. But what this reminded me of is how I should be praying for you, how we should be praying for one another. Let me explain. You know, when you, when you look at the melon, you're not really concerned about the outside, right? Because you don't eat that part. You want to know what's on the inside. And that's the first thing we have to think about. We, we can look at each other and we can identify what our particular needs might be. You know, somebody's sick, somebody needs help with something, somebody's lost their job. But what about the inside? Paul was directing us to look on the inside. Now, when you go to buy a melon, you know, you're supposed to do certain things like look at it to see if it's lopsided or squeeze it or thump it or maybe even smell it, see if it smells good, you know. Now, I do all of those things, but I tell you, I don't know what I'm doing when I'm doing it. <laughs> I, I just do it because I don't want to look foolish, you know. I don't want somebody seeing, you know, just grab it and throw it in there. Somebody would go, oh, he just took a melon without pumping or squeezing, you know. Now, I'm not going to go around squeezing you. I'm not going to look to see if you're lopsided. I'm not going to thump your head. And I'm not going to smell you, okay? <laughs> and believe me, I'm just as relieved as you are about that. But what I'm trying to tell you is there is a process. There's a cer certain things you have to look at to know what's on the inside. And that's what Paul was directing us to do in this prayer. So he gives us four things that we should be looking at or praying for for fellow believers. And the first one he called our partnership in the gospel. He started out by thanking God for the partnership in the gospel that he had with the Philippians. Now, uh, the word partnership is how our NIV Bible has translated that Greek word and and some Bible scholars think Paul was referring to this working partnership that he had with the Philippians. In other words, that they were all working together for spreading the gospel. And they were. But that word partnership in the Greek just literally means sharing. Paul was thanking God that they were sharing the gospel together. That they were partaking of the same thing. And so what he was really doing was, first of all, thanking God that they were connected to Christ through their faith. And the reason he was thanking God for that is because that's not the way it always was. Now, in the Greek world, there were, you know, some famous Greek philosophers, Socrates and, you know, guys like that. And there was a famous Greek statement that simply said, Know thyself. You know, I'd be like on a billboard all around town, you know, know thyself. The problem was the Philippians and many others didn't really know themselves. They didn't really know what they were like inside. Oh, sure, everybody has their own view of what they're like, right? And we always like to think pretty good of ourselves. But they didn't know what they were really like. They didn't know that they were separated from God because of their sin. They didn't know what disobedience to God was. In fact, they didn't even know the true God. That's what it means to be living in, in darkness and to have that darkness inside of you. They just had no clue. But 
But things changed when Paul came to town. He really let them know themselves. And in a verse in between our passages today, Paul said this, It's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains, because he was in jail, or whether I'm defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. That was the partnership he was referring to. The fact they all had God's grace. You see, God, Paul was thanking them, thanking God that they had saving faith in Jesus. When Paul came to town, he went to work. He preached God's word. And through that word, the Holy Spirit worked in the people's hearts, convicting them of their sin and separation from God, but also convincing them of God's love and his salvation for them and comforting them with the message of forgiveness and eternal life in Jesus. You see, when it comes down to us, there, there are only two views of eternal life. Some people think, well, you're just going to automatically have it. You're just going to automatically keep on getting, you know, living, you know. And if they believe in a God, it's because, you know, God is nice and he just lets everybody into heaven. Or some people might say that, you know, I'm going to have the eternal life and not the bad stuff because I'm not a bad person. I'm not one of these people going around just shooting up people who go to the movies or, or go into a building or at work or whatever. I'm not that way. And so I'm going to get the good life. You can have that view, but that ain't the right view. For God tells us that even just one sin, one breaking of a commandment, keeps us out of heaven. So the other message about eternal life, which is the one the Bible shows us, is this. That God loved you so much that he wants you in heaven. And he worked to make that possible. He sent his own son into this world to live the life that you couldn't live. That is, to live a life of perfect obedience to all of God's laws. And then he takes that obedience and he gives it to you. He credits it to you by your faith in him. And then that same holy, perfect son dies a death under the wrath of God for sin. Not for his, but for your sins and mine. To assure us now that we are saved, God raises his son from the dead so that we know we too will have eternal life. And that's what Paul was praying for and thanking God for that these Philippians had that message just like you and I have it. In fact, Paul would keep on praying for himself with these words. He'd pray that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Paul said, here's what you need to know about yourself that you have Christ's righteousness, you have his redemption, and you have his resurrection through faith. 
That's what Paul was thanking God for as he looked around at his fellow believers. But his prayer was also that God would keep them in that saving faith. Paul says, I'm confident that God will keep you in this faith until the day of our Lord Jesus. Now, there are some Christians who wrongly believe that once you are saved, you're always saved, and you'll never fall out of faith. And that just is not true. I mean, just look at the Old Testament and the New Testament and around us today. You can see people falling away, falling out of faith. Now, there's probably two ways in which that happens. One might be by explosion. <laughs> by that I mean there's some drastic change, some tragic event that happens in their life, and because they can't accept that and see how God could possibly allow that to happen since he's supposed to be a loving and good God, they just reject all those ideas and teachings about God then as being false because of this explosion in their life. But I think most people probably fall out of faith in the second way, and that is by erosion instead of explosion. That is, it's a gradual wearing down of their faith. You know, pretty soon they stop worshiping God. Pretty soon they stop listening to his word. Pretty soon they stop praying. Pretty soon they have no concerns about God. They're out the door. They have put God out of their life. So questions come up, doubts come up, and it all leads to simply a rejection of God. That's erosion. Well, God doesn't want that to happen. He knows it can, though. And so he's given us his word. He's given us his sacraments. He surrounded us with fellow believers to encourage us to stay in saving faith. And that's what our prayer should be for one another. That God would work through those means to keep us in saving faith. And so now I'm going to ask you to do something. I want you just to, to look around today and see the people who are in church with you. And, and maybe some aren't here because they're on vacation or whatever it might be. Uh, but, you know, you know that they're believers in Christ. Thank God that he has put faith in the hearts of those people. But as you look around, you might also see that there are some people who are missing. Maybe some people in your family or, or friends you know who have wandered away from God. Put them on your list and look up to God and pray for them. That God would work through his word, maybe through you, maybe through another Christian, to bring them back to him and to keep them in saving faith. That's what it means that we pray for fellow believers in their partnership in the gospel. In fact, let's do that very thing right now. Let's join our hearts in prayer for others. Dear Lord God, as we look around and we see this church and school filled with many of our fellow believers, we want to give you thanks for your goodness and grace in bringing the gospel message of salvation for them by your grace through faith alone and causing this message to bring them to faith in Jesus. We thank you that you continue to feed and strengthen our faith by giving us your word and sacrament, the means by which your grace comes to us, and then surrounding us with fellow believers who love and care for each other. 
Today we also pray for those who aren't here because they may be slipping away from you. Work through your word and fellow believers to bring them back to you that they may have the confidence of your love and blessing and the certainty of eternal life. In Jesus' name, hear us. Amen. Knowing Jesus, there is no greater thing than that. But we're not done melon shopping, all right? <laughs> Paul still gives us three more things that we need to pray for for our fellow believers. Here's number two. And this is my prayer. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. He's praying for what I would call discipleship. That is, our growth in our saving faith. Now, sometimes, you know, we're interested in how we measure growth. And so for kids, there might be a certain growth chart, right? You know, how tall are they getting? Uh, we might measure people's uh, academic or cognitive growth by certain tests they take or, or their athletic ability by certain skills, they, whatever it might be. So we have certain standards we use to measure people's growth. Well, what standards would we use to see if a Christian is growing? Well, that's what Paul was talking about. And he gave us four things to look for. First of all, love and learning. He says, I want you to grow, to abound more and more in love. And the word that Paul used for love is a word that just crowds the pages of his letters. It's the word agape. Now, in Greek, there were three different words for love, and he uses this word because he's talking about the highest degree of love. It's, it's a love that's a selfless. It's self-sacrificing. It's a love that is thinking of the other person before himself. It's, it's not emotion, but it's an attitude that's reflected in action. Now, the world wants love. The world is always looking for love. Love is all we need. Love, love, love. But the world doesn't understand what real love is if you don't know God's love. And God is the one who gives us that agape love, that love that thinks of others first. He thought of us before he thought of his son. He wanted us so badly, he sent his son into this world. Jesus wanted us to be in his family so much that he laid down his life. He sacrificed himself for us to win us back. When you know God's love, then you have love. Now, Paul's prayer was not just that you know God's love. We know God's love, but he wants us to grow in that love, that it would abound more and more. The picture is there that, that it's just overflowing into every area of our life, into our work, into our relationships, and, and everything we do. God's love should be evident. That is, thinking of him and thinking of others first. But love doesn't travel alone. Love has a companion. He said, grow in your love and your knowledge, your, your depth of insight. I call it learning. The, the word he was using there was not just referring to just get a bunch of information and facts and stuff it in your head. No, he was talking about the knowledge of God that you experience, 
that you have come to learn and appreciate, knowing God's will for you and seeing God's working in your life. That's how we grow in our faith. And he adds to that then. He, he wants us to grow in this faith and in this, this following of the faith. Uh, the faith here is talking about what we might call a, a, a heart knowledge. Okay? Um, he's, he's talking about following that Christian faith. You know, many people have wandered from the true faith. They come up with their own ideas of what God is and what heaven is and how you get there. But God has made it very clear to us in his word. There is only one truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. We need to have our trust and our confidence in that one hope and follow that one hope and not let the world or our own ideas get in the way and mix things up. Now, look at your own faith. Are you growing according to those faith growth standards? And think about other people now that you know, your fellow believers. Can you see them growing according to the standards of love and learning, faith and following? Pray for them, for that growth. The third thing Paul urges us to pray for, he goes on. Here's the purpose now for growing in our faith. He says, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. He wants us to pray for ourselves and for others for discernment. And that has to do with our walk of faith. That is, how we're living the Christian life. Discernment is simply the process of distinguishing between right and wrong, good and bad. If you go into a grocery store and your goal is to buy food for your family, well, you're not going to go into the aisle where there's floor wax and other cleaning uh, detergents and things and give that to your family. That would be wrong. The same way when you're going to go look for a melon, right? You want to find the best melon. That's why you thump it and squeeze it and smell it, right? You want what's good. Well, that applies to our walk in life, too. We've got to know what's right for me and what's wrong. What's good and what's bad. Paul says, go for the best. So when we're on the internet and looking around, if there's something that's not right with God, don't go there. If you're watching TV or or at a movie and and it's not the right thing, don't watch it. The other night I was watching one of my old TV shows that I like to watch and and as the show started going, I recognized the episode, and I, I turned to a different station, and, and my wife said, why are you turning? You always watch that show. I said, not this episode. It's not a good one. And I didn't mean the entertainment value. I meant the moral value of it. It wasn't good. We've got to discern. And not only in, in the media things, but you know, even in the language we use, the jokes we listen to, our social activities, God says, go for the best. And he tells us why. So that we are pure and blameless. So we don't have any impurities in us. So that blameless means that there's no no scar, no sign of any injury or falling. And he tells us why. For the day of Christ. Let me put it this way. How do you want to look when you stand before God? Do you want to look like you're covered with all your sins and faults and failures? No. No. 
how can we possibly be pure and blameless? We, we, we always have faults. We're impure people. That's where the blood of Jesus comes. The blood that cleanses us from all impurities. And that's where the righteousness of Jesus becomes the robe that we wear before him so we can stand pure and blameless and confident on that day. And that's why I want to live with discernment now. Not because I'm trying to win God's favor, but because I already have God's favor and I want to live in what he has given me. I want to live for his glory. And that's the next thing then that Paul urges us to pray for our fellow believers. He says that they be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He's talking about living a life of dedication. That now is the focus of our faith. That I'm filled with the righteousness that comes from Jesus. Not my righteousness. I don't want people to, to say, boy, you know, I'm bored. He's really a good guy. Look how he lives. Look how he cares for other people. No, I want them to see Jesus in me. You know, when you get a melon, you, you cut it open, you want to eat it. You cut it open and you smell that aroma coming out. It's good. I want people to see Jesus in me. I want them to smell that and say, that's what I want. I want to live for God's glory. And then when that happens, when I'm filled with that fruit of righteousness, I'm going to have joy. In, in the front of, of our text, at the very beginning, Paul says, I'm praying with joy. And that word joy and rejoice, he uses over a dozen times in this little letter. And here's what real joy is. When you have Jesus first in your life and you're living for him. And then when you're concerned about others and living for them and them for yourself. God will give you that joy when you pray for others as you talk to your Savior Jesus. Praying for others. Pray for their partnership in the gospel. Pray for their discipleship, their growth in faith. Pray for their discernment, their walk of faith. And pray for their dedication to live a life that's focused on Jesus. The other day I, I saw a, a real moving commercial it was a, a bunch of little kids in a classroom, and, and the camera focused on, on one girl, and, and all of a sudden she just bursts into tears. And she gets up and starts running, and here it was, it's because her father, a soldier in the Middle East, had just returned, and she didn't know it. And she was so surprised and filled with joy. Here was her daddy. And they show him hugging. And then on the screen it flashes the line, Take time to be a dad today. Pretty cool, huh? Let me urge you to take time to be a prayer partner today. Take time to pray for a fellow believer. Surround them with the hug of a love of prayer. And when you pray for others, you're going to find that that will accomplish a lot and bring you joy. Amen.